because of the artifacts and the writings and the various things that have been found. I just think they're still uh, behind the curve on who went what direction. And that the beginning was here indeed, and they went back and forth from here to there, not from there to here. But there are some links on that site that uh, have quite a bit of information there, and they say even the Smithsonian recognizes uh, Egyptian uh, things here in America. So I thought I would throw that out if you want to do a little research on that. Another one I checked just out of curiosity, uh, curiosity because I had gotten to thinking about the possibilities of Jerusalem and the promised land here, and uh, how you had, well, what spurred it, spurred it, I guess, in part was uh, building booths for Feast of Tabernacles and how they gathered palms and so on, pine, pine needles and palms and various things the Bible mentions uh, to build their booths. And uh, where we think Jerusalem might be, or was, and still is for that matter, or will be rebuilt, is uh, high enough above sea level that palm trees don't grow there. Of course, we do have them in California. We have them in St. George. We have them even Hurricane, which is a little bit higher. Uh, but you go up that extra 3,000 or so feet to Cedar City and you don't have them. So that's, that's been a question and a curiosity in my mind about climate change. As I've stated before, the geologists and archaeologists say there is no indication of ever having a climate change in the Middle East, that it has always been pretty much as it is today. However, if you go to the Hurricane Fault, is all I typed in, and there's quite a little there about this fault line that runs from Parowan down to the Grand Canyon called the Hurricane Fault. But in a link to that, there was some very interesting information showing that this area was at once at sea level and uh, that there has been upthrust here over the years. Uh, one article even indicated that in the last 100,000 and another in under 10,000 years. I think there's a plaque up on top of Cedar Mountain that says some of those lava flows occurred, wasn't it, in the 5,000 years? 1,000 to 5,000 years. So there's, and that's just the geologists are saying that, and they put the plaque up on Cedar Mountain here. So there has been relatively, or very, in that sense, recent volcanic activity and perhaps even upthrust of this whole area of uh, in the not too distant past. Now, when they say 100,000 years, often when you're doing geology speak, they're talking three and 400 million years, you know. Uh, I, I think they don't know what they're talking about, but uh, still in all, uh, there is quite a little evidence for climate change here, and I won't go into the details of it beyond that, but I thought it was very interesting to do a little reading and research on that particular item indicating that there is good reason to think that things have changed here and they haven't over there. So, for what it's worth, it's something to look into, perhaps. Uh, this coming Monday, of course, is Day of Atonement. Starting tomorrow evening, we'll begin our fast for the Day of Atonement. And the service... Uh, 
will be at one o'clock here, one o'clock, our normal starting time. I wanted to leave it at that because of people on the phone lines that are used to dialing in at one o'clock our time. Uh, so one o'clock on Monday is the High Holy Day meeting. Now in regards to the Feast of Tabernacles coming up, uh, I decided to change traditionally the time we had was 10.30 and 2.30 on the Holy Days, or 10.30 for all the morning services. And uh, my wife suggested a couple weeks ago, well, why don't you change it to 11 since we don't have sermonettes now? Uh, and the service tends to be shorter, and that being the case, we have a much longer gap between the morning and the afternoon service, which to stay here can be a long time, or to, and some of you don't live out here, so you can't just go home and come back that easily. So I decided to change it, uh, beginning all the morning services at 11, and the afternoon services at 2. So the morning is a half hour later and the afternoon is a half hour shorter. And that gives us a shorter lunch break, but still should be plenty of time to have potluck and recover from that before the afternoon service starts. So we made it uh, consistent throughout the feast schedule, uh, services at 11 and at 2. Maybe for those on the phone line, those of you here have a schedule, uh, but those out there do not. The feast starts Saturday, October 19th, next Sabbath, and we will have services at 11 and 2. Next Sabbath, 11 and 2. Then on Sunday, on 11 o'clock, Monday, 11 o'clock, Tuesday, 11 o'clock, Wednesday, 2 o'clock. Wednesday, 2 o'clock, and that one's at Zion. I don't know that we'll be able to broadcast that one for you out on the telephone lines. I say at Zion. It's been closed. Now the state has provided the money to open it back up for a short while in hopes that the federal government will get their ducks lined up, but uh, we'll see on that. Uh, But we do have some options there. Perhaps we could meet at the library, which is a city building where we've met before in Springdale, if we can't get into Zion at that time. So what's happening on the national scene and the world scene already is beginning to affect us here. Some of you have felt it in terms of loss of jobs for the time being. But Wednesday, uh, 2 o'clock, whether or not we'll be able to broadcast that remains a mystery. Probably not. Thursday, 11 o'clock, Friday, 2 o'clock, and then the last great day, Saturday, the 26th, again at 11 and 2. So I hope you were able to get that down if you're out there uh, on the phone line trying to jot that madly down as I read it. Now at the feast, here's an announcement Finger foods will be served from 9.30 a.m. until 10.30 a.m. on the 19th and the 26th, the first day of the feast and the last great day. Uh, There is a list on the back table to sign if you would like to bring foods such as fruit, nut breads, muffins, and the like. Please have your items here by 9.15. They want to serve from 9.30 to 10.30. We will provide trays to place the food on. And another note, remember any leftovers can be used at the evening activities. 
Okay, I guess that means that if there's things left over from the morning on that first day, they can be utilized during some of our social activities that you have on your uh, schedule that you receive today. Okay. That's that part. Um, I wanted to mention uh, our brethren in Kenya. Uh, remember I asked for donations from your second tithe, not out of your pocket, but second tithe for them. And I had mentioned in passing, not knowing the entire situation over there, that I was going to try to send over $1,000 which I have done, plus more than that, actually, already that's been turned in. But uh, I was a little unclear, so I asked Braddock's to explain more clearly what was going on over there, and what about second tithe? Don't they save their second tithe? And he said that they have had a drought. Uh, the crops have been very sparse this past year, and that what little second tithe people do have uh, will be required just for their transportation and their food while they're there. But we have expanded, since I was there last January, uh, into Uganda, and there are six families there, fairly large families it appears, who will be keeping the feast with us, and they have to have a site. And he mentioned that they have 122 families who will be attending at Kissi, K-I-S-S-I, in Kenya. Uh, fairly good-sized city. We went through there two or three times and met with a group outside of it. <clears throat> and he gave me the numbers uh, to get a hall. Uh, that's probably upwards of, I'd say, at least 300 people. He didn't give me a count of women, children, and so on. But 122 families are heads of household. Uh, the feast site, they can get a hall for free, a place to meet, if they rent rooms, or call them houses. Huts would be probably the correct word. Uh, to provide a small room for each family. They won't have, if you've got six kids, it's one family, one room. Would require... Uh, $2,814 is how it translated from Kenya shillings to the U.S. dollar. It's about 1 to 87 right now. So uh, for him to rent the hall and get the rooms in Uganda for that group and the 122 heads of household in uh, Kissy, where they'll all meet together, I thought it, at first he, he said we were going to have six or seven different sites and travel. But they decided to get everybody together, which I prefer, and is a better deal. Uh, they can all hear the same sermons on the same days and so on. And we did send uh, CDs over there for them to use during the feast. But uh, let's say 300 people, uh, nearly $3,000 it would take for them to have the housing they need for the feast. That, that's just a room now. They'll cook on a fire outside it. Uh, they'll have no electricity. They'll probably have no toilets uh, head up the hill. Uh, there might be around that hall some uh, rudimentary toilets, let's say. Holes in the ground, basically. 
and they might have a covering around them. That's unusual there, though. But if it's a hall with the rooms and everything, they might indeed have that. So I would like to put together that much money out of our second tithe here to help them if we can. Now, as of uh, today, there has been about 1900 uh, turned in, maybe $20 over that or something like that. So we could use about another 1000 or right close to it. If you can, I mean, we've been very, very generous, and I do appreciate those who have turned in some, but uh, <coughs> on faith, I prayed about it and went ahead and sent the full amount to him yesterday. The 20, I sent, he asked for 2814, I sent 2900 total. So uh, if you can dig into your second tithe a bit more, perhaps, or if some haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, if we could raise close to another thousand, then they can have a feast there where everybody has shelter, they have a hall, and they'll use their own second tithe then for getting there and what they eat. So to to have an expenditure of only nearly $3,000 for 300 people, that's pretty efficient in that sense. Uh, if we can put together that much, I, I, I would, and, and Braddock said they would very much appreciate that. Uh, this kind of came about as a result of Bill Goff saying that our people couldn't meet with his since uh, there's disagreements on doctrine. And I suspect now our group may be bigger than his, could be quite a bit bigger. Uh, so... Uh, be that as it may, I think it's better that we have our own elders meeting with those who agree with us doctrinally all in one place. So I, I think things have worked out very well over there in spite of the difficulties of putting everything together in lack of funds. By the way, that uh, motorbike that, I, that we bought Braddock's uh, after I came back in January, I think it was probably the beginning of March before I sent the money over for him to get that, He's using it weekly to go from congregation to congregation to meet with the different ones. <clears throat> it took me a while to try to determine in my own mind that this was not another scam uh, because they perpetrate many, many of those over there in those countries trying to hit up religious organizations over here for funds. And they go to anybody's website, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Church of God, whoever, read a little bit on their site and then say they agree with it and the things that they agree with and make you think that they're with you and then uh, try to get help. And I have been involved with quite a few of those that I did never do anything with because it turned out after questioning and questioning them, I found out they really didn't have the background they said they did. <coughs> but I'm pretty much convinced these people do. Now let's get on into the sermon. Uh, I, I want to include something here, not as an announcement so much as, as to be on tape, but fall is in the air. We can feel it around here. Summer is gone, and there's a chill in the air for sure in the evening and even during the daytime a bit. Uh, so that means Feast of Tabernacles time. Now let's for a moment... Consider that, in case anyone has any remaining questions, uh, as to when this year the Feast of Tabernacles should be. 
There are most of the churches of God and the Jews kept it nearly a month ago now, three weeks ago or so. Now, was that correct, or are we correct in keeping it starting next week, a month later, based on the, the next new moon instead of the one that they used? The Jews fought back and forth before uh, the spring equinox to determine which new moon to start the count of the year. They just simply picked the one nearest the spring equinox, be it before or after the spring equinox. This year, the closest one to it was the one before the spring equinox. Now, we run into a com conflict there. Exodus 34:22 tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles, in specific, is to be after the turn of the year. Now, there is no new year in the fall. God made it very clear that they were to begin the year at the time when they came out of Egypt, at the time that barley would normally be ripe. The barley doesn't have anything to do with the calendar, it just has to do with the time of the year when the new year begins. The calendar is in the heavens, Genesis 1.14. It's not on the earth, it doesn't have anything to do with the earth, it has to do with what's in the heavens. So, uh, let me turn back there for a moment. Uh, Exodus 34.22. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end, or as my margin says, the revolution of the year. Now there are four revolutions or seasonal changes in the year. You know, spring, summer, winter, and fall. Uh, four solstices or equinoxes. So he says that the feast of ingathering, which is a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, is to be at the turn of the year. Or after the turn of the year is the way it would have to be. The new moons determine what day of the month it is. But it has to be then after the revolution or the seasonal change. Now this year, the seasonal change to fall was September 23rd. If you started your count of the new year, beginning with the new moon just prior to uh, the spring equinox, your seventh month would begin about September 19th or 20th, depending on whether you postpone or not. That would mean that this year, those who used the new moon before the spring equinox would have started the Feast of Tabernacles three or four days before the revolution of the year or the change of season. They are in direct disobedience of Exodus 34.22 when they do that, whether they know it or not. If you consistently take the new moon following the spring equinox as the first new moon of the new year, you will always have the Feast of Tabernacles after the revolution or seasonal change from summer to fall. It will always be on the fall side of it, as Exodus 34:22 specifies. So they were, based on that, a month early, or at least a month early, maybe a, a little less than that if they postponed for a day or two. I don't know this year whether they did or not. You cannot 
postpone what God put in the heavens as a calendar. Uh, You just follow it, that's all. You have no right to postpone it. And another point I was going to make on that, now it slips my mind for a moment. Uh, Oh, on a clock, you can't put the minute hand ahead of the hour hand. You just can't do it. And the heavenly clock is up there. The equinox is the hour hand. And if you try to put, use the minute hand before the hour strikes, you can't do that. You have to have the hour hand, the equinox, then the new moon is the minute hand, then sundown is the second hand. Then you have all three signals. You can have the new month, new year, first day. It's that simple. Anything different than that uh, is resting what is in the heavens and cannot be done. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, well, okay, they do it, that's, that's, that's okay if they want to do it that way. No. Is it okay if we decide to keep Sunday or Wednesday for the Sabbath? Is that okay? You only postpone it one day if you go to Sunday. Can't do that. God has declared Saturday is the Sabbath. You can't postpone it a day or three days. When God declares the clock is in the heavens, you can't change it. You have to follow the rules of the clock in the heavens. You can't postpone anything or change it. Otherwise, you're doing the same thing to the feasts that they're doing to the Sabbath by keeping Sunday or Friday. It's the exact same thing. It isn't holy time. The Sabbath is holy time. If you want to keep it on Sunday, that's your day. It isn't God's day. It isn't holy time. So if we don't follow the heavenly clock, then we are having a vacation. We're calling it the Feast of Tabernacles, but it is not holy time. God did not ordain it in the heavens. So that is a very, very important thing to consider. Now, the argument has come up recently. Well... It must be okay to follow the Jewish calendar because Jesus did. Did he? How do you know that? I can show you in Scripture that he did not. The Passover that caused or culminated in his crucifixion, he kept the beginning of the 14th. And the book of John, maybe another one of the Gospels, clearly says that it was the preparation day of the Jews for the Passover, the day he died. It wasn't the Passover day, it was the preparation for. And it calls it the Jews' Passover. Christ kept it the night before, so he was not keeping the Jewish calendar. Now, there may have been two or three Jewish calendars at that time, and it may have coincided with one of them, but not the main one, because Scripture makes it very clear that they were a day late. He was dead and buried by the time they did their Passover. So to say Christ followed the Jewish calendar is a misnomer. Not only that, but a Jewish scribe, Hillel, is the one who devised the present Jewish calendar, 300 A.D., 325, whatever it was, somewhere in that neighborhood. 
So they didn't even have the current Jewish calendar that the Jews are following today in Christ's day. It didn't come along until 300 years later. So how can you say he followed that Jewish calendar when it did not yet even exist? Well, there's a lot more about the calendar, but I wanted to make a few points here to show that uh, some of the things that are going around or, or th- that are being observed clearly are not scriptural. You cannot rest what God put in the heavens. You just have to simply read it and follow it. You can't monkey with it. Now let's go from there to Leviticus 23. I don't necessarily want to read all the instruction here about the feast, but pick it up down in uh, verse 42. Exodus will not work if I'm trying to read Leviticus 23:42. Speaking of the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, you shall dwell in booths, or sekoth, which is a Hebrew word for temporary dwellings, translated booths, seven days... All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That would include all of us. So we are to have temporary dwellings, not stay in our own dwellings during that time. That your generations may know. Now here is something critical. This is a definition of something that that is to remind us of. Let's understand why we stay in temporary dwellings during the Feast of Tabernacles. Don't do it just because you read verse 42 and it said, Dwellin'. Do it because of verse 43. That, or because, for this reason, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in temporary dwellings when I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim, I am the eternal your God. So us dwelling in booths has great meaning vested in the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness without permanent homes, permanent dwelling places. In other words, we are to take instruction from that to apply to ourselves today. So that wandering in Egypt for 40 years translates now because this was something that we were to continue to do as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's see kind of how that ties in. Now I find it very interesting just for what it's worth that Herbert Armstrong died in 1986. As Micah says in chapter 4, our king is dead, our counselor has perished, and as Isaiah 52 says, there is no one among her sons to lead her. So the church has been in confusion and frustration ever since, basically, 1986, when Herbert Armstrong died in January. Uh, there are those who proclaim they're there, that they are the leader to lead all, but that has not transpired. They have their own group, but they don't have, there is no leader that we can all look to at this time. Different ones look to different people, and some look to no one. So, he died in 86. Interestingly enough, add 40 years to that, what do you come up with? 
2026. Now we try to determine when the Jubilee might have occurred over the years because we had an interest in coordinating our third tithe years in the year of release, the seventh year. And a passage in Ezekiel indicates, when counted from, (coughs) that very possibly the next Jubilee year coming up would be 2027. Uh, That's the best knowledge that I've seen to this point as a marker. So we counted where we would be in that Jubilee sequence and established when our seven-year cycle would be based on that. And we all adjusted our third tide years uh, in accordance to it so that we would all be on the same page as ancient Israel was, not just everybody doing it based on their baptism or or the nearest feast to their baptism, or however we may have done it in the past. So we're trying to coordinate it and get it as close together as we can. Whether we have the actual right sequence or not, I think is not entirely important to that. It's just that we're all trying to get on the same page and do it as close to we as what is real as we could. But it may very well be that that's the case. Now, if 2026 ends 40 years of wild wilderness travel, uh, then Christ might return, uh, possibly in 2026, and 2027 then would be the jubilee or the establishment of the millennium after the honeymoon with his bride. Uh, don't know that that's the case, and there is the scripture that says we'll cut it short, so I'm not trying to make any predictions here anyway. Let's, let's get that straight. It's just interesting to me that we came up with that or somebody came up with it and we adopted it as the best information we have to date. And from the time he died and the confusion really began, 40 years later would put us at that time frame, wandering somewhat in confusion. Now, I do understand that we will have leadership that will be established before that time because you have the three and a half years of tribulation when the two witnesses speak. You have the year and a half just prior to that when Jerusalem is built, uh, per Daniel 9. Uh, And then you have the temple that has to be built once it gets started, and that brings us back within six, seven, eight years of today. So some things have to develop fairly rapidly in order to get a temple built, get Jerusalem built, to have three and a half years of tribulation, and to get down to 2026-27 time, uh, time frame. <coughs> I find it interesting also that Herbert Armstrong began to be called in the 1926-27 framework. From there, if the Jubilee year fits 2026-27 coming up, God would have started his work through Herbert Armstrong 100 years prior to that. 1926-27. Now, if you count 50 years from the 26-27 time frame, you come to around 1976-77. Fifty years later, that was a time of great confusion, a time of rebellion and separation of the ministry, of some of it, from the church. Uh, so it wasn't by any means... Uh, a type of, in that sense, a year of liberty at all. Some, now maybe it was in a way, 
Some liberated themselves from the Herbert Armstrong hierarchy. They left. They said, we want freedom. We want ability to do as we please. And they may have been 50 years early, the more I stand here and think about it. But it was a time of rebellion, not of coming together. So if you count then from there uh, to 2026 and 27, you have 100 years. Uh, If Christ's ministry began in 19, I mean in uh, 27 A.D., which is the best year that our scholars came up with years ago, and it may be within a year of that, but it may be that year. Uh, Herbert Armstrong began to be called uh, to a ministry exactly 1,900 years later. And then you add 100 years to that, 2026 to 2027, and you have 2,000 years. That would put us on target for from Christ's beginning of his ministry to his return, barring being cut short, 2,000 years, two days. I find that very interesting if you put it together. Don't know if it means anything, but interesting numbers to consider, to think about. So he tells us in to dwell in booths that we might remember the wandering, and the desolation. And here we find ourselves from 1986, a people that murmured, a people that complained, a people that griped, a people that questioned God, and may again be beginning to question God on why is this thing dragging out so long. We thought after we came here, things would happen rapidly. So we can begin to question the validity of what we've learned. We can begin to question God. And why didn't you do what those scriptures say? But remember, we have always said the timing is up to God. The events he talks about, but the timing is his. And if what we have just gone over has any validity whatsoever, it might, then it gives us an indication that we still have a period of time before the uh, order to build Jerusalem, the beginning of the tribulation and the 1260 days of preaching the gospel to the world, before Christ returns. But this is almost 2014, you know. And if you back up from 2027-26 area... And all the events that have to occur, we've only got six, seven, eight years now for the church to gather, for the temple to be built, and then for the order to build Jerusalem to occur. So things have to happen now fairly soon. So I'm not trying to give you a date and a time or a year. I'm just saying if there's any validity to that, and if these numbers fit together and mean anything, then... uh, Some things have to start popping fairly soon, some way, somewhere, somehow. Let's go back to the book of Nehemiah. This was a time of renewal, too. If you remember the story in Ezra and Nehemiah, how Ezra details the uh, building of the temple. And then Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, Just as... Haggai and Daniel put together the story in the end time, just before God shakes the heavens as the earth, as Haggai puts it. 
Uh, the temple must be built, and then Daniel 9, clearly an end-time prophecy, indicates that the order to rebuild Jerusalem has to come. And as soon as it is finished, 69, I guess it is, the 70 weeks prophecy anyway, about a year and a half later, the temple is defiled, the abomination of desolation is set up, and the 1260 days of the Great Tribulation start. So quite a few events have to happen between now and then, but... Ezra and Nehemiah were written as a story in history that points to today. Let's go to Nehemiah 8. They had been building the wall of Jerusalem after the temple had been built in Ezra. Uh, And here in chapter 8, they had come to the seventh month, verse 73 of chapter 7. So it, it gives us a time that this is coming down. We're about to enter the in the seventh month, uh, as of the Feast of Trumpets this year, and the 15th is next Sabbath, which would begin the Feast of Tabor, okay? All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. Uh, verse 2, And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. So they met on the Feast of Trumpets was when they met, first day of the seventh month. And he read therein, uh, before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning till midday, midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the, on the Feast of Trumpets, mid-morning to, or in the morning until midday. I don't know how long the service lasted, probably longer than ours. Uh, And then verse 4, I will include only because it says something that people really have problems with sometimes. Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And then these other elders stood beside him in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. We have had people over the decades complain that the ministry was up on a stage, on a something built of wood so people could see. And they said, well, they're putting themselves above the people. Well, yeah, physically, so they could be seen and heard better. But they then translate that to say, well, they were putting themselves in their minds as higher spiritually or more important than the people. Now, that's, well, that may have been done at times and shouldn't have been. Uh, So perhaps that is valid in one sense, but it is not valid to use standing on a pulpit of wood or a a stage of wood uh, cannot be used as the basis of the ministry having a wrong attitude. Because this is something that Ezra did, and he was certainly humble before God, okay? Okay. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Eternal, the great God. And all the people answered, So be it, so be it, with lifting up their hands and bowed their heads and worshipped the Eternal with their faces to the ground. So we pray the same way at the beginning of a service, bow our head and pray to God. And then it says, these other men along with him at the end of verse 7, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, 
in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So they expounded it, in other words, explained it, talked about it, even as we're reading it here and then I comment on it. Uh, that, is, that is the method that God uses here and established in Nehemiah, which we use to this day. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha and Ezra, the priests, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people. Uh, oh, they were teachers teaching the people. Believe that? Said to all the people, This day is holy to the eternal your God. Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the eternal. Something they had not heard, perhaps in their lifetimes. So it was quite a shock and an emotional moment to hear the law of God read before them. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions to them for whom nothing is prepared. God has told us that the feasts are to be used to uh, have whatever our hearts desire. This legal. Uh, whether it be meat or strong drink or whatever, not pork, uh, if your heart desires it, it isn't legal. But the things that are legal. And he does tell us to share our second tithe with uh, the poor, the needy, the uh, widow, the orphan, and so on, the stranger within our gates, and even the elders. Uh, that's part of the instruction, and that's what is said here. Be sure to enjoy the good things at the feast, but also send portions to them for whom nothing is prepared. And I use that, uh, along with the other scriptures, as authority to say, let us use our second tithe to help our brethren there who are in great need and could not really have a feast together uh, without our help. It's just, it's impossible for them to do. So it's a chance for us to fulfill... Uh, Nehemiah 8, along with other scriptures, Isaiah 58 being one of them, where we fast in order to give what is ours to others for their help. And he says, if we do that in Isaiah 58, we will be the healers of the breach, the restorer of paths to walk in. Now remember at the end, the, the, all things have to be restored, and the breach between man and God has to be healed. And those who are willing <coughs> to follow through on all those scriptures that have to do with it are the ones that are going to heal the breach between man and God. That's what God has told us and what we've been preaching for 16 years. But it's very true. For this day is holy to the eternal, uh, neither be you sorry, for the joy of the eternal is your strength. So we come to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and joy in our Father and His Son in heaven. Uh, so they went to do all this. Let's go on down to uh, verse 14. And they found written in the law, which the Eternal had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the Feast of the Seventh Month. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mountain and fetch olive branches and pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make temporary dwellings as it is written. 
So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. So we have a little more explanation here. It doesn't have to be on top of your house, many of which are slanted, uh, and you might fall through on a mobile home. Uh, but it could be in the courtyard. It could be in the temple grounds, in the streets. Uh, we've kind of got it set up out here near the church hall. Call that the temple ground, if you will. This isn't the temple of God, necessarily. This is just a meeting place and a hall we built so we, that the temple could meet in it. But I think we're within the confines of Nehemiah 8, the way we're doing it here. And all the congregation of them were come again out of the captivity, made booths, and sat under the booths. See, they'd been in captivity in uh, Babylon for 70 years. All this had been lost. And when it was read to them, they said, oh, let's do that. For since the days of Joshua, <coughs> the son of Nun, to that day, had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness. So when they went into the land, and Joshua divided it up, after Joshua died, this had all fallen aside, and they were not doing it anymore. So this was a time of rejuvenation, a time of learning, a time of growing. And we should be in that today. As we study God's Word and come to understand more of His plan and what He is doing in the end time, uh, some of the knowledge of the things that we ought to be doing, we are trying to restore as we learn them so that we are in compliance with what God would have us do today. So we take these things with gladness. One more verse. Also, day by day... From the first day unto the last, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. So, not just the seven days, but all eight, including the last great day. So, that's our example in Nehemiah and restoration of these things. Now, let's tie that together with us. Let's go to Matthew 17. I think this is very, very interesting. Uh, I think I see some things in the transfiguration I never looked at in quite the same way before. But let's see this. Christ had told them there were some standing there which would not taste of death till they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, he obviously didn't mean his return to the earth at the end of the age because those guys all died were martyred. So he had something else in mind, and we find that in chapter 17. That was the last verse of 16 I was just quoting from. And after six days, Emmanuel took Peter, James, and John, his brother. That's the first thing of note. He took James, Peter, and John. Those were the three leading apostles of the twelve. He didn't take all twelve up there. He only took those three, okay? Remember that, because I think it is quite ironic and interesting as we go on. He brought them into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So instead of appearing as the Jesus, the man that they knew, he was transformed or transfigured into a likeness of what he would be as a spirit, as we read in Revelation 1. 
So he appeared in glory to them in this vision. Now, it wasn't real, it was a vision. We'll see that a little later on. People think that uh, they went to heaven. No, it was a vision. So they saw him transfigured in vision. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. I think that is quite interesting. James, Peter, and John, throw in Jude, which we just went through, speak of those things of the end time. They speak of the return of Christ. Uh, Peter making it very clear about the heavens dissolving and the end time events of the day of the Lord occurring. So he was projecting in his books, in Peter, uh, the end times. Now we just went through those, so this should be fresh in your memory. So James also spoke of the end times and how things would be and how people would be in the end times. Uh, John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John also talked about apostasy and people leaving the truth and not being true to the end or enduring to the end. So all three of them spoke pretty dramatically and pretty plainly about conditions at the end of the age, mentioned the day of the Lord in some cases, and Jude was just an echo of things that Peter said in 2nd Peter. We kind of threw that in uh, in that series as well. And maybe I will cause this sermon today to be the last of that Faith, Hope, and Love series because of some of the content of what we're discussing right now, to kind of summarize it and to put it into perspective. So let's understand this transfiguration in terms of prophecy. James, Peter, and John were used to give an end-time message about prophecy and what we see happening before our very eyes now with the New World Order and how this will transform into the beast and the false prophet and all these end-time events culminating in the day of the Lord. So he took those three and then appeared Moses and Elijah. Now why did they show up? This is an end-time prophecy about things that would happen at the end. Hold your finger there for a moment. Go back to Malachi, chapter 4. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, So it's obviously the end time, end of the age, end of the world as we know it, the cosmos. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So definitely an end time prophecy. But to you, and that would be those who then exist and are alive when this happens. To you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. In other words, protected in a stall, fed, taken care of, not just out on the mountain wandering around trying to make your own living. In other words, Christ is going to establish in the end time, about the time things start flying apart, 
his people as calves in a stall. Now remember Zechariah 2, where he says that during the days of (coughs) the two witnesses, uh, by name Joshua and Zerubbabel in that prophecy, would uh, oversee the church, feeding all seven churches the golden oil, and that Jerusalem would be built as towns without walls and much men and cattle there. Interesting, in Malachi, he talks about Christ appearing. He says he'll dwell with us there at the end of Zechariah 2. And in the end time, not not the millennium, but before. Healing in his wings. Many prophecies about physical healing, spiritual healing, repairing of the breach between us and God, the church and God, and calves of the stall, taken care of not just wandering about as we've been doing since Herbert Armstrong died. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. Now, if anyone fight against the seven, even eight principal men of Micah 5 who go out to face the Assyrian when he comes into our land, this land, They will be killed and will be ashes under the feet of the righteous who are there at the time. This is premillennial still. And if any try to hurt the two witnesses once they start their message, fire will come from their mouths and devour them, and they will be burned into ashes, and their ashes will be walked upon by the righteous. Remember, this is the day coming when the earth is being punished by God. It's not the millennium yet. Not after Christ has returned. But the church will have healing and protection. Now he says in verse 4, Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. So this time, at the end, Moses is to be remembered. Then he says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So if you're still wondering about the timing of this, this Elijah will appear before the day of the Lord in the time leading up to that period of time. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse of everyone being destroyed. Remember, he says in Luke and Matthew that except the day be cut short, there would no flesh be saved alive. And that only for the righteous, the sake of the righteous, would this occur. So there have to be some righteous people at the end, and God will cut short the annihilation of all flesh because of the obedience of a few. Now, there's three levels there I've explained in sermons past that the hearts can be turned. The very first thing that has to occur is for the hearts of God's children, the Christians, to be turned to Him. It was a loss of our hearts that caused the church to be scattered and destroyed. It was lukewarmness that caused what we are suffering today. 
even as lukewarmness and murmuring and complaining and not trusting God caused 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And we may just go through the church as a whole 40 years before this thing is completely turned around by Christ when he returns. He does say he will turn it around here and in other places a little while before that for those who are faithful, the ones that he gathers to do the end time work. But make no mistake that the end time here in the book of Malachi, Moses and Elijah are mentioned as types of those who would be leaders at the end. Okay? Now let's go back to Matthew 17. He brought these three men who interestingly wrote James, Peter, and John as end time prophecies. And when he was with them transfigured, in other words, this is going to be near the end when Christ returns in glory, just prior to, in setting, Peter answered, verse 4, and said to Emmanuel, Lord, is it good for us to be here? Is this where we ought to be? Uh, he's probably scared when he saw Christ transfigured and then hear Moses and Elijah pop up in vision. They weren't alive. They didn't come down from heaven. They weren't resurrected. It was a vision. But as far as Peter was concerned, it looked pretty real. Is it, is it good for us to be here or to be here where they were standing on the mountain? If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They understood the resurrection. They understood if Moses and Elijah were there, Christ must have returned in glory, and it was time to begin the millennium, and the millennium is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. So it didn't take him long to figure out, if Christ is here in glory, this must be the Feast of Tabernacles, or the beginning of the millennium. So let's build booths. He had God's spirit by then. <laughs> or some under... No, I guess he didn't. Acts hadn't come yet. <clears throat> but at least he put together history, put it that way. And while he yet spoke, Peter that is, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. Now Moses and Elijah were on the scene in this vision. But God's message to James, Peter, and John was, You listen to my son. Moses and Elijah are not the key figures here. Christ is. That we must never, ever forget. We are going to have two men appear who are in type in the Bible presented as Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are presented in Malachi and Matthew 17 as Moses and Elijah, who are the anointed ones of Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4, who will be the two witnesses against the world. But we are not to put them on a level of worship as we tended to do with Herbert Armstrong. Even to this day, over a quarter century later, 
they're broadcast, put out by the remains or dregs of the worldwide Church of God, who preach Herbert Armstrong on television and radio and in plain tr- and in magazines more than they preach God. Over a quarter century later, their broadcast comes on, and there's pictures of Herbert Armstrong in his books. There's talk about him more than there is talk about God. It is idolatry. We must put God first and hear what Christ has to say. This book was written by God. If, if two appear as our leaders, which God says will be the case, they are to preach Christ, not themselves. Christ is the key figure. Let us never, ever forget that. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Emmanuel came and touched them, I'll use his name that we use today, and said, Arise, and he will be being called Emmanuel by the time that this prophecy is fulfilled by us. We already do. So Emmanuel came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. How many times in the Old Testament prophecies does he tell us when we reach the end time that we are to fear not, to be of good courage, to work, and uh, one of the things slips my mind. What's that? No. Uh, That's not the one he uses in particular. We are to humble ourselves, no doubt, and he does say that, but it's not one of the four that I was thinking of. Anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to the point here, except that uh, he does say don't fear. If you go to Isaiah 8, I won't go there for sake of time today, but we've read that before where it says this conspiracy or confederacy or new world order is coming, and it says don't fear it, fear me. And later on it says look for me and wait for me, further down in that chapter. So our period of time, as we see this looming right before our faces now, day by day in the news, it's getting very real and very close. Do not fear it, God says. Fear me. Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and the soul. Fear him who has the keys of eternal life in his hand. We are not, brethren, to fear what is about to come down on this earth and on this nation. We're to fear God. We can watch. We can observe. We can see it happening. We can see the leaves coming on the trees and watch as Christ told us to do. But he also told us not to fear. And part of the message here. And this end-time vision being provided for these three men, he tells them, don't fear. Arise and be not afraid. Verse 8, And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Emmanuel only. And as they came down from the mountain, Emmanuel charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So after his crucifixion and resurrection three days later, they could go ahead and speak of this. But it was uh, about the end time. 
James, Peter, and John gave us the end-time message. So we should pay a lot of attention to James, Peter, and John. Thankfully, we just went through it and reminded ourselves of it. The Feast of Tabernacles, we're also going to remind ourselves of something else that God told us not to forget and to do. So I'll save that for a few more days, but uh, it's on the same order of importance. It goes on down, verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things, quoting from Malachi 4. But I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they wanted. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke unto them of John the Baptist. So the types come over and over again. John the Baptist was a type in the day of Christ of Elijah. He says Elijah and the message he had came through John the Baptist. What was Elijah's message? You priests of Baal are going to be destroyed. And he killed them right before the eyes of Israel. He told them, God is God. Not these priests of Baal or these false gods that the people had. John the Baptist came and told them that the gods they were worshiping were not the true gods. A forerunner of Christ who would truly come as God. And yet they denied him, didn't they? So even with John the Baptist coming and telling them ahead of time what was to be, they ignored it, didn't believe it. And so, here at the end, in this case, two will come, Moses and Elijah, as a final witness against the way of Satan and this world, and tell them that the gods they're worshiping are false gods. Gods of materialism, gods of men, gods of whatever. And that... Christ the King is coming to depose all those gods and bind the main god, Satan, and kill most of the idols on the earth. Who are the greatest idols and the most of them on the earth? The people. We are self-contained idols. We put our wishes, our wants, our desires our feelings ahead of God. And that makes us idol worshippers of self. And God is going to cause to be destroyed almost all mankind out of six and a half, seven billion, whatever it finally comes to. Only 100 million, it appears, from Daniel will survive. So when God says, I'm going to wipe out the high places and the idols, he means exactly what he's saying. And if you make an idol of yourself, you will die. He will preserve a few as seed to begin the millennium, to be taught the truth. But believe me, when they have gone through all that will happen between now and the time Christ comes and sets up the millennium, they will be humble and ready to worship Him. Most of them. And what few do not will have no reign 
until they come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That's tantamount to accepting Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and ruler of the entire earth because that is the time that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. And therefore, there in Zechariah 14, he uses that very analogy to describe the rebellion that will still exist even after the Holocaust at the end of the age. They will come up to keep the millennium and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, or have no reign and starve to death. Now, let's look at a couple more. What time do I have? Ooh. Uh, let's look at two, uh, well, two at least real quickly. Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 20. Remember, when we first started back in Leviticus 23, we talked about uh, remembering what it was like when Israel came out of Mitzrayim, out of slavery. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, he echoes the same thought here. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So even as those people came out of captivity under Moses, they wandered about in temporary dwellings, seeking God, ultimately, hopefully, and looking for a permanent dwelling place. Even as we look for the new Jerusalem to come down, us with it, and Christ and the Father, at the beginning of the millennium, as a permanent universe-ruling city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Meanwhile, we are only ambassadors here. But we have to represent that kingdom, even though it is not here yet. We have to act as the culture of heaven acts. As the Father and the Son live, we are to live. We are to be reconciling our lives to their way of life so that we can be one with Christ at the Day of Atonement, which we'll have in a couple of days and talk more about that. But our lives are to be, right now, reconciled to God, to become as He is, as ambassadors from His kingdom. John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world, therefore my servants do not fight. If my kingdom were of this world, then they would fight. But it's not. So we're not out here fighting with the world, with the nation, trying to bring peace on earth and reconciliation of mankind to God, because it will not and cannot happen. We can only reconcile ourselves to God. And then Christ will immortalize us and use us to reconcile the rest of the world to God. That reconciliation process is going to begin very shortly when God stirs the faithful remnant to come and build his temple. And in that place will he bring peace, he says in Haggai 2.9. Not until the church is going to continue to fragment 
continue to divide and split and be less reconciled to God and man until God stirs those to come build the temple. That's the way the Bible is written. Then it will turn around because those faithful ones will reconcile themselves to God and learn to have peace between themselves. So in that place, peace will come. Meanwhile, we are ambassadors. We represent the kingdom of God. And everything we say, everything we do, every thought should reflect the kingdom of God and the thinking of God. We always come back to that. So that we're reconciled to him as ambassadors. Can't change the world now, but we're here to set an example for them. One more then. 1 Peter uh, 2. 1 Peter 2. Verse 9. Well, in verse 8 he talks how we were disobedient. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a particular or redeemed, it is a better word, people, verse 9, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us into his light, into his understanding, and we're to live that way. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So God called us out of this darkened world, gave us the truth, and has given us mercy and forgiveness of our sins, and has commissioned us then to do a job before Him. Verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, like ambassadors. We should, the world around us should be strange to us, and we should be strange to them. We do not think like them, or shouldn't, and therefore they see the difference. Like strangers and pilgrims. Have you traveled into foreign countries? You go to a place where the customs are different, the languages are different, and you feel like a stranger. You don't feel like you fit in. You don't know these people. You don't talk like these people. They do things different than we do in America. They need to change. Excuse me. That's the ugly Americans talking. As strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The world lives by their desires, their lusts, their wants, the things they think they need. He says, you're not to do that. You're just one of them if you do that. Be like strangers and pilgrims, walking through, but not letting the world stick to you. I think I said last week something about the clean and unclean there in the book of Haggai. But these people are unclean. We have to be holy. And that which is holy cannot touch the unclean, or it becomes unclean. Remember that? Where he told them, touch not the unclean in the Garden of Eden. Not only don't eat of it, don't touch it. So we're to be strangers and pilgrims to the world. We're not to fit in. We're not to look like them, act like them, think like them. And therefore they will look upon us as strangers and pilgrims. 
having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God when the day of visitation or punishment comes upon them. Not until, they won't. But when they see God's people protected, when they obey Him and don't live like the world, while they are being destroyed, then they're going to say, Oh, now I understand. Those are the people of God. Wow. Let's be strangers and pilgrims. Let's live in our booths for the Feast of Tabernacles and realize that our permanent home comes at the time the millennium and the Feast of Tabernacles becomes a reality, not just a prophecy. We are here temporarily to serve as witnesses and examples of the kingdom of God, as ambassadors, strangers, and pilgrims. That is why we live in booths.